0: From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression from the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal. I'm Jerry Baker, editor-at-large of The Journal. If you're not already a subscriber to Free Expression, please do sign up at Apple's Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you do your listening. This week, what next in Israel's war on Hamas? Almost three weeks after Palestinian terrorists murdered more than 1,400 Israelis, The conflict there remains in a state of stasis. Israel has continued to bombard targets in Gaza from the air. But while it's gathered several hundred thousand troops near the borders with Gaza, there's still been no ground invasion, as we record this on Wednesday morning New York time. Meanwhile, the diplomatic climate continues, as you would very much expect, to deteriorate for Israel. After the brief outpouring of sympathy for the Jewish state following the horrors the world witnessed on October 7th, more governments and international organizations are now, of course, criticizing Israel's response. This week, Antonio Gutierrez, Secretary General of the United Nations, an organization not exactly known for its friendship with Israel, even seemed to suggest that the Hamas atrocities might in some way be morally explicable. He attacked Israel for not providing sufficient humanitarian support for civilians in Gaza, and said the slaughter of Jewish women, children and babies and elderly, quote, did not happen in a vacuum. Meanwhile, the Biden administration, according to multiple news reports, has been urging restraint on Israel, too. So what is next? And what are the wider implications of this war in the Middle East? Well, I'm joined this week by Ruel Mark Gerecht, Middle East scholar and commentator. Ruel's a senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies and was previously at the American Enterprise Institute. His work has appeared widely, including, I'm glad to say, on the Wall Street Journal editorial pages. In an earlier career, he served as a case officer for the CIA, focused on the Middle Eastern theatre. He's the author of several books, including The Wave, Man, God and the Ballot Box in the Middle East. And Ruel Correct joins me now. Ruel, thanks for joining Free Expression. My pleasure. So tell us, if you would, what you think's going on. It's nearly three weeks now since these Hamas terrorist atrocities committed in Israel. Israel, since spent spent that time largely confining itself to aerial bombardment of Hamas targets in Gaza. Meanwhile, the diplomatic environment, as everybody would have expected, sort of continues to deteriorate for Israel. We're all expecting... Something much more. Israel has said it wants to destroy Hamas. It wants to eradicate it. Everybody assumes that means there will have to be a ground invasion, uh, even perhaps an optional occupation of Gaza. Yeah, that hasn't happened. What's your sense of what's going on?
1: Well, I think the uh, IDF and the political leadership in Israel is hesitating. I think they're concerned about how they do this. I think they're deeply concerned about avoiding a reoccupation of Gaza, which at this point, seems almost inevitable if they intend to go in there and really try to destroy Hamas. Obviously, the Biden administration is very nervous about that scenario. The civilian casualty rates will be very high. I don't think, even though some folks have sort of made felicitous comparisons to Mosul in 2016, the attempt to The successful attempt to dislodge ISIS from that city uh, in Iraq. I mean, that was a terrible, terrible battle. It lasted for months. I don't think anybody would want to repeat that. But I think the Israelis are staring at this and they're going, you know, my God, how are we going to do this without it turning into a room by room by room bloody, you know, slugfest? And I think that's why they paused.
0: Does that mean they may not actually? even do this, what, what everybody's been expecting? I mean, if that's the case, how do they achieve their objective of eradicating Hamas if, as you say, if it can only be done in these appalling circumstances, both for Israeli forces and obviously for civilians too, and inevitably for Israel's reputation internationally, is it achievable? Is that objective, given all these challenges, achievable?
1: Well, I'm skeptical that the objective of destroying Hamas is possible without the Israeli reoccupation of Gaza. And that would mean that they would have to go through the bloody battle of taking the entire strip and then having to hold it. I mean, they don't have, you know, an alternate Palestinian government that can come in to take over. That's simply beyond the capacity of Fatah of the Palestinian Authority on the West Bank, they wouldn't want to touch it at all. So I think that the Israelis are going. All right, how do we do this? They also have to go in there and they have to find the missile factories. Obviously, you know, Hamas and I suspect with Iran's help uh, have been able to develop uh, much better missiles. We could tell from the weaponry that was seized inside of Israel that they have a lot of weaponry, probably much more than the Israelis anticipated. That their attempt to quarantine Gaza was obviously a failure. Their past policy of mowing the lawn obviously hasn't worked. So I think they're trying to figure out, is there a way to do this? Can you possibly do limited military forays into Gaza and be at all successful? I think the answer to that is going to be no and that if they're going to do this, they're going to have to go all in. And obviously, they can't keep a reservist army down there forever. It's not a professional force. They, they have to shoot or stop.
0: You say to destroying the political leadership, destroying the military assets and capabilities, you've also got to try to recover the hostages, right? And Hamas is playing this obvious game.
1: I mean, I suspect the Israelis have already concluded that the odds of Recovering those hostages once a serious attempt begins to take Gaza is all but impossible. So if they get lucky in their operations and happen to get information, intelligence on where they are and they can reach them, I'm sure they'll try. But if they allow the hostages to take priority, then you're not going to have any military operation whatsoever.
0: And meanwhile, of course, Hamas continues to play... Uh, the world's audience, the media many of the world's governments like a musical instrument, right? I mean, they continue to present every single, you know, they continue to give numbers for civilian casualties that are reported faithfully that nobody has any clue whether they're really accurate or not. Of course, there are bound to be some civilian casualties, but it's also highly plausible, presumably, that Hamas is exaggerating them. They initially had success in exploiting that bombing of the incident at that hospital, which had actually significant diplomatic repercussions as Biden's meetings with Arab leaders had to be shut. They're doing this drip, drip, of hostage release, and they're getting praise and applause for it from people around the world, despite the fact they just committed, you know, the single most deadly attack on Jews since the Holocaust. I mean, Hamas seems to have, you know, having done this astonishing atrocity, Hamas also seems to have kind of many of the sort of political cards in its favor too, doesn't it?
1: Well, I think certainly as this goes on, I mean, you know, they're going to kill relatively few Israeli civilians. So Israel is going to have to in all probability, is going to have to launch some type of deadly military operations. They have to continue the air raids. So it's going to be Palestinians who are going to be dying. This is going to play directly into Hamas's hands. Obviously, there's a great deal of global sympathy on what you might call the Western left for the Palestinian cause that remains vibrant. So it's a very difficult PR game for Israel. That's why they have to, I'm I'm sure that's one of the factors that has caused them to pause. I mean, Israel has changed too. So, you know, the Israel of 20, 30 years ago, isn't the Israel today. Some might say it's less Spartan. So it's got to consider those factors. And this is a Obviously a nightmare scenario that I don't think anyone in Israel had anticipated, so they don't have a guidebook for this. They are literally making it up each and every day.
0: What are the diplomatic uh, considerations here? And what do you think of the diplomatic activities that are going on? We know Qatar's been involved in some of these discussions about hostage releases. And Qatar is plays a double game. But it is in a rather availing position, given that it has the strong connections with Hamas, but also with the United States, and indeed is a country that Israel has been been able to work with. But more broadly, maybe in the Arab world, I mean, is there anything at all, given the military challenges, What do you think is going on on the diplomatic front now between Israel, the Arab countries, the United States? We've seen a lot of flurry of diplomatic activity. Where's that headed? Is there any chance at all that that could produce anything of any value here?
1: Nothing good. I mean, I think when they rely on back-channel communications, it inevitably is going to benefit Hamas. It's going to play into the Iranian hand. It's going to sap will. I mean, Iran, for example, it's just take them and, and leave Hamas out of this question for a while, is as very accustomed to being admonished through back channels by the United States. It ignores those admonishments. Hamas has everything to gain through Qatar's intercession here. So it also enhances, I think, probably the fear for the hostages, which is quite understandable. But the more you allow That to intrude, the less likely you are to do anything strategically valuable. So, if this becomes a tactical game where we continue negotiations, they dribble out hostages, then I think Hamas will score a significant victory, and I suspect Israeli willpower will evaporate.
0: We're going to take a break there, but when we come back, I'll have more with Ruel Gurecht on Israel's war against Hamas and the wider war that may develop, perhaps, throughout the Middle East. Stay with us. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City,
1: where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code podcast. Visit wsj.com slash F-O-E-F podcast to secure your spot.
0: You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. I'm back with Roel Goret of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Middle East scholar, we're talking about Israel's war on Hamas and the wider battles ahead in the Middle East. About the United States, you know, the Biden administration continues to be publicly very supportive of Israel. Biden has given several speeches now, including in Israel, in which he gave powerful expressions of support. But there are increasing reports, obviously sort of the behind the scenes, diplomatically... U.S. officials are urging significant restraint. There's even been some reports in some places that they're cautioning against the ground invasion. I want to talk about the wider U.S. role here and the wider implications for the U.S. But what do you think, from what you know and from the people you talk to, what do you think is the role that the U.S. is playing directly with Israel at the moment?
1: Oh, I think uh, without a shadow of a doubt, the Biden administration is encouraging caution on the part of Israel that they don't want to see Israel go in full force into Gaza. So I think the recent uh, piece that uh, former President Barack Obama wrote is actually pretty reflective of where the Biden administration is now, and that is they want Israel to think of some other means uh, to punish Hamas that uh, something short of a land invasion of the Strip. Now it's a very good thing that uh, President Biden has sent in, you know, two aircraft carrier groups into the region but i would argue that the thing the united states ought to do is actually put down very firm red lines that affect iran that is to say very clearly if iran escalates which i think it has to do if iran escalates and we see more missiles fly from lebanon towards israel then the united states will attack iran directly cut out the proxies Go directly for the source. The Iranians have always feared escalation. So make them anxious. And I don't think we're at all there. I think we want to de-escalate. I think that's the official American position is de-escalate whenever possible. I think that's exactly the wrong approach to take to this. You want to make people fearful that, in fact, you're going to get much more involved and that you're going to do the unexpected.
0: What would it take, do you think, to get this administration to at least a minimum to up its rhetoric with regard to Iran? I mean, we've seen these reports. Again, we know what Hezbollah has Bala's been doing. We know how close Hezbollah is with Iran. We obviously know how close Hamas is. But we've seen these you know—these reports of direct attacks on U.S. forces in Syria. We had that episode of missiles being fired from Yemen, from sort of Houthis, again, backed by Iran. You know, again, that was aimed at Israel, shot down by U.S. naval forces. do I mean, you think that's what Iran is doing, like sort of provoking here and there, sort of prodding to just see essentially kind of how the U.S. responds? I mean, how much further does it have to go before the Biden administration does come out and say and issue that warning about escalation
1: that you've just described? That's a good question. I mean, I think the Iranians have been probing. They always probe. And they probe because they are fearful of what the United States can do if it decides to do something. I think it's important to underscore this, that Iran has spent a long time developing its axis of resistance. And there's a tendency, I think, amongst commentators to say the Iranians are always prepared to watch Sunni Arabs die. And Hamas is a Sunni militant, Islamist movement. And Iran has unlimited capacity to watch them die for the cause. I think everyone has to be careful about that. I think Iran wants to make the axis of resistance real. They want to expand it. They want to recover from the enormous damage uh, that the Syrian civil war did to their cause, where they lost sort of the ecumenical appeal to Sunnis because they had were helping the Assad regime in Syria slaughter hundreds of thousands of Sunnis. So I think you have to view this, this current war, as a means for Iran to sort of recover ground in the Middle East so do they want to have the united states attack them directly do they want israel to have attack them directly no but i think they're willing to calibrate their aggression and escalate it significantly and i think the objective for the united states and for israel is to prevent them deter them from doing that now that isn't going to solve the, the Gaza question for Israel. Obviously, the Israelis are going to have to make up their minds. Are they going to go in there and kill as many members of Hamas as possible and take down the stockpiles and the missile factories? I don't think there's any end run around it. There's no pleasant way to do that. That's going to be a bloody mess. But that's one question. And then you have to answer, I think, the larger question is, what are you going to do about Iran? Because Iran's hand in developing Hamas into a weapon against Israel has been pretty profound in the last few years. The coordination between them, the coordination with Hezbollah and Lebanon has been intimate and it's been increasing. I think the Israelis foolishly were ignoring it. The Americans were too involved with trying to get the Iranians to come back to some type of pay you go nuclear deal so they don't test an atomic device before the next presidential election in the United States. So I think we took our eyes collectively off the ball here. And the Iranians took advantage of it.
0: What about Hezbollah? Let's talk a bit bit about that specifically. I mean, again, there have been these sporadic firings of rockets and missiles. Israel has taken out a couple of weapons bases there, it seems. And again, this looks exactly on the pattern you've described of of Iran kind of probing. Is one of the fears for Israel and indeed for the U.S. that an all-out assault on Gaza could be seized upon as an opportunity by Hezbollah in the north to really step up its attacks there and Israel will find itself fighting on two fronts. I mean, and how realistic a probability do you think that is?
1: I mean, I think it's a certainty that Hezbollah is going to step up attacks. The question is, is how much? Does Hezbollah and Iran want to draw Israeli forces away from Gaza? Probably. Fortunately for Israel, the war that occurred in 2006 in Lebanon was devastating for Hezbollah. It's funny because you go back and you look at it, uh, most Western commentary at the time saw that adventure as an Israeli defeat. That is not how Hezbollah saw it. So that lingering effect of that defeat for Hezbollah in 2006 is pretty profound. I think we would have seen a lot more Hezbollah activity if it had not been for the pain that Israel inflicted on that organization in 2006. But, you know, Hezbollah lives to fight, and I think that always has to be remembered. They're not a social organization. They are a social organization in Lebanon, but the cutting edge, its ethos is to fight against Israel. So I think they want to, they will. The question is the scale, and I think for the Israelis and the Americans, the preeminent concern Is to remind them how much pain can be inflicted upon them, and I think the United States and Israel have to sort of deny themselves wiggle room. I mean, their inclination is to always give themselves an out so they don't have to escalate. But I think the opposite is required. They want to show that they do have a red line. That red line is firm, and not only are they going to inflict enormous pain on Hezbollah, they'll inflict pain on iran directly now this is a problem for israel to do it by itself because it simply doesn't have the material and manpower to do this so that's why the united states's role on this is very important and again i compliment president biden on bringing in the two aircraft carriers Iranians pay close attention to the U.S. Navy. They know how much damage the U.S. Navy can do to them. But they will test to see whether we have the willpower to use it.
0: Talk about that red line. Obviously, the point of imposing that red line and clarifying that red line for both Hezbollah and Iran is to deter. I mean, that's an ideal scenario. We want to make it very clear that should they cross that red line, terrible military vengeance will be visited on them. But obviously, to make that red line a reality, to make that deterrence a reality and a real possibility, you have to be clear about what you could achieve. We hear a lot about Hezbollah, 100,000 rockets, you know, extraordinarily well armed and much better armed, actually, than Hamas in the South. I mean, if it did come to it and if the red line was ignored and the U.S. and Israel, were, and the U.S. particularly, were forced to follow through on their threat, give us a sense of what the U.S. could achieve. Could it essentially wipe out most of the Hezbollah threat? I mean, what is the military balance here in the way that with those aircraft carriers or any other uh, air support the United States might want to use in the region, how much damage could we actually inflict on Hezbollah and through Hezbollah Iran?
1: Well, the United States, through air power, you're not going to be able to destroy Hezbollah. That doesn't happen. I think you can do a lot of damage to the organization. You can certainly force them to keep their heads down. You think the tunnel system in Gaza is impressive. The tunnel system that has been built in Lebanon is much more impressive. So they have massive stockpiles that are, in some cases, probably 100 feet or more underground and fortified bunkers. So the Israelis don't have the penetrating weapons that can take those out. Only the United States does. But, you know, again, Israelis, they're in a bit of a pickle here because ideally you want to follow any air attack with a ground incursion to ensure that you've gotten most of these things. The Israelis, for a very understandable reasons, obviously don't want to do that. Their army is only so large, most of their army is a reservist army, so they can only deploy it for X amount of time before it causes real harm to the Israeli economy. So you have to choose your battles. But I think it is fair to say and accurate to say that if the United States were to deploy its air power, it would change the equation significantly. And you could certainly inflict enough pain on Hezbollah to deter them from doing more. So the thing about deterrence is that they have to believe that not only will you do something once, but that you'll come back and you'll do it again and again and again. And again, I have to emphasize, I think you have to escalate this or be prepared to escalate it directly back to Iran. The American practice on this is to focus on the proxies. That's exactly what Iran wants that you focus on the proxies, but you don't go to the source of the fire. And the source of the fire is the Islamic Republic.
0: So that's the same question then. So how realistic is a deterrent threat against Iran? I mean, you know, the fear everybody always has is, I mean, Iran has a global network which it could activate and commit all kinds of horrors and terrorism. We know something about its own domestic military capabilities. Obviously, it has a nascent nuclear program that we believe, we hope, is not close enough to full development yet. But how realistic is the U.S. threatening Iran? How much do people really think the U.S. is willing to risk the consequences of striking Iran directly? And and again, what would be those consequences in your view?
1: Well, I don't think the threat right now is terribly realistic. I mean, the Biden administration has refrozen, for example, the funds that were transferred from South Korean banks to Qatar. we recently refroze them. Does the administration actually say that in clear English? No, it doesn't. Why isn't it saying that in clear English? Because I think it still has this illusion that somewhere down the road, however many months after the horrors of Gaza are no longer fresh in our minds, that it can restart some type of pay-as-you-go nuclear deal with the Islamic Republic. Now, this is absurd. And I suspect even the rational minds inside of the Biden administration that have been so gung-ho having some type of nuclear accord with the Islamic Republic realize that after Gaza, that they're not going to be transferring billions of dollars of hard currency to the Islamic Republic, that it's just no longer possible. So there is hope, that they can readjust. It's just that they're not there yet. Intellectually, they're not there yet. They're still attached to the idea that non-proliferation is the most important issue in the Middle East. It's not. The United States could do a lot, and certainly a lot that Iran fears. I mean, if the United States is willing, for example, and can convey to the Islamic Republic credibly that it is willing, for example, to take out the nuclear sites, then that has a huge deterrent effect. We know these things are obviously well hidden and buried, but do you
0: think we do have the intelligence to be able to do that?
1: I think you have the intelligence to devastate the program. And we've had that for quite some time, whether you can end the program, all the rest. I mean, I think those questions are sort of secondary, if not tertiary. The most important thing is, yes, we know where a lot of their stuff is. So if you were to destroy the facility near Qom, I mean, that would be devastating to the Iranians. If you were to take out the facility in Natanz, that would be devastating to the Iranians. And more importantly, it would signal that the United States has radically changed its approach to the Islamic Republic and that it is going to directly punish the Islamic Republic for its nefarious, lethal actions, which, by the way, have included killing American citizens. But it requires a resetting of the way we have approached the Islamic Republic, I would argue since 9-11, where we've actually tried it to avoid conflict with them. Certainly since the discovery of their nuclear weapons program and, and the revelation of the nuclear weapons program in 2002, to be frank, I mean, the CIA was aware that they had a, a nuclear weapons program before 2002, but we didn't realize how far advanced it had gotten. But our attitude towards that from Bush forward, George W. Bush forward, was to essentially not confront it, to not confront the Islamic Republic. They were mauling us in Iraq. Did the Bush administration ever once think about taking punishment back to Iran? No, it did not. The Obama administration obviously tried to establish a new modus vivendi. They thought they could reach out and somehow change the basic nature of the US Iranian relationship. It failed. That mentality, I think, is somewhat diluted, fortunately, that mentality still exists in the Biden administration that they just don't want to go there. I mean, you
0: say this has been going on since 2011, but I do want to ask you a little bit about the domestic politics here. I mean, the Trump administration came in immediately, jettisoned the JCPOA. Famously, Trump ordered the strike that killed Soleimani, the sort of Iranian military hero. Do you think they're looking at where we are now? They see maybe a Biden administration that looks quite weak and looks very committed, as you've just described very well, to this kind of long-term dream of kind of somehow re-enlisting Iran in a kind of diplomatic denuclearization, de-escalation, which, as you say, is highly unrealistic. Do you think they look at that and they look maybe at what Trump did and they look at the possibility of another Trump administration again? I don't want you and I to have our own reservations about Trump. We've discussed it many, many times. But do you think the sort of the differing approaches taken by the Trump administration and the Biden administration, the possibility that Trump will be back in a year or a little over, do you think that plays into the Iranian sort of thinking? It could.
1: I mean, I, I think the Iranians are probably focused on the here and now. I suspect that, say, let's just assume that Trump wins the presidential election in November 2024, I would expect the Iranian reaction would be to accelerate the development of the nuclear weapon because Trump is, if nothing, perennially unpredictable. So you don't know what he would do. He might bomb Iran. He might try to get President Ibrahim Raisi on the telephone and offer him the deal of the century. He might completely ignore Iran and offer Saudis you know, a whole nuclear infrastructure with local uranium enrichment. I mean, one doesn't know what Donald Trump would do. From the Iranian perspective, that is actually concerning. I do think they would fear the possibilities of a Trump administration because it is less predictable. And certainly, Trump's surprising attack on uh, Qasem Soleimani, the head of the revolutionary gods Quds Force, which is the organization that does the most nasty things abroad. That shocked them. They had not anticipated that. And I think the United States benefited from that enormously in the region. But these things wear off. So you have to constantly renew your awe, And the Americans don't like doing that. They don't even like thinking about awe. But, you know, in Persian, the word for awe is hebat. It's an incredibly important concept, because if you're going to have power, your power has to be unchallengeable. And that's what it means, awe. And the United States has to restore it, because the Iranians will probe, and they have to see that if they probe us, they will get hit. And not only will they get hit, they will get hit, disproportionately. But that's something very difficult for the United States. We're uncomfortable with using that type of power politics. It's just, it, it's not very American. Back to Israel.
0: Again, whatever happens uh, over the next few weeks and months
1: with the military
0: campaign that Israel must obviously pursue and whatever happens and however the U.S. gets involved and however it has wider regional implications. Back to the question of the Palestinians. Netanyahu has been following this approach of doing these deals with Arab countries, kind of putting a as he likes to put it, turning inside out the traditional thinking about the Palestinians, that is, that you can't get peace with the Arabs unless you deal, you get a resolution with the Palestinians. He's turned it literally the other way around. We've seen, and again, as we see, the kind of broader public opinion reaction to what Israel is doing, the sympathy that exists in much of the world, in the region, in Europe, and even as we've seen among younger people in the United States here for the Palestinian people, what's the, this is obviously the $64,000 question that we've been asking for the last 50, 60, 75 years, is a two-state solution feasible, plausible? Is it really the only thing that can be done? Or is there some other deus ex machina here that somebody can come up with that somehow produces a
1: longer-term peace? I don't think there is a deus ex machina. On this one, I think the Israelis are just in a permanent pickle. I mean, a two-state solution, I don't think it's ever been viable. But even if you want to assume that there was a chance back in the late 1990s and Yasser Arafat threw it away, We're never going back to that. There's just been far too much violence, the intifadas, the problems with the PLO, the Fatah, the Palestinian authorities. I mean, the two state solution isn't viable, the one state solution isn't viable. I think the only alternative the Israelis have is essentially is the very unsatisfying status quo of them maintaining some type of dominion over the Palestinian territories, which something they don't want and obviously that is very abrasive for folks in the West. It offends, I think, against sort of a liberal idea of basic human nature that you can't have one people rule over another. You know, that's imperialism. There is no solution to this, that there is no two-state alternative. There's no one-state alternative. The only alternative they have is an unpleasant continuation of the status quo, except they're going to have to intrude more often. I mean, I think that Gaza has shown that if you're not present, if you're not there, you're going to have uh, organizations like Hamas Build up missiles, stockpiles, and be in a capacity to attack you, and create you know mayhem. So I don't see this as a new beginning for Israeli-Palestinian relations. I think it it tells or should tell everyone that Israel is going to have to become much more present in the Palestinian territories, not less.
0: Well, on that note, real correct. Thank you very much indeed for joining Free Expression. My pleasure. Well, that's it for Free Expression this week. Thanks very much for joining us. Please do join us again next week when I'll have another discussion about one of the big issues shaping the world today. Thank you very much for joining us. Have a great week and goodbye.